Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time for our weekly check-in on the things that are going on in the United States. And boy, is there a lot for us to talk about. Although, I do feel like I say that every week. But Reggie Cicchini is with us now, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. All right, let's start with the big story. Historic moment in the United States this week with the indictment of a former president. The indictment of a former president uh, where this case, you know, kind of came at us really quickly on Tuesday and is now going to stay on a back burner for months and months until we get the next court appearance in December. But this was historic. Never before has a president faced any kind of criminal charge in any kind of case alleging wrongdoing. The former president still sees himself as a victim. His legal team is still trying to portray him as somebody uh, who fell victim to a long-standing political witch hunt. But arguably, given the fact that this indictment moved forward, the charges were laid against the former president, this marks a new moment in political history where those who were once deemed untouchable now realize that they can be held accountable. Okay, and there is a bit of a um, like a ban, a gag order on this, right? Well, there, there's there's not really a gag order per se. The former president has just been told that he has to be careful of the wording and language that he uses, uh, so as to not have it be deemed threatening towards the court or towards members uh, of the judicial process. But he's not technically barred from being able to talk about the case. What there's a secondary kind of layer to this, where there is going to be. Um, I guess, an effort to prevent the president, former president, from releasing information from the grand jury that is obviously kept secret so that that doesn't get leaked into the public. So it's not quite a gag order, but he is under strict rules to ensure that he doesn't go too far in crossing the line. And what has been the reaction in political circles to this? Well, I mean, look, Republicans still say that the former president did nothing wrong, that he didn't uh, that he that he's that he's a victim of, of weaponization of the judicial system across the country. Uh, and, you know, he's making money off of this. Other Republicans are making money off of this. So they're using this to a political advantage. But there is a bit of that kind of conversation happening quietly in the Republican Party to does this legal and political baggage start to weigh them down? Does it turn off potential independents? That's something polling will pick up on in the next couple of weeks, if not the next couple of months. But for now, Republicans still lining up behind the former president to say, look, he's the he's he's the victim here. We need to stand behind him, regardless of what that's doing to our own political hopes. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, Let's can we talk about what's happening in Tennessee? Reggie, can you explain to me what's going on there? So this is this is interesting and it is a kind of unprecedented moment. Uh, in the United States, once again, Uh, there were three lawmakers who came forward to the floor of the Tennessee uh, legislature within the last uh, week or so, and they were protesting against gun violence, wanting the state to do more in enacting laws to protect people and and mostly kids, uh, especially on the heels of that school shooting at that Christian school. And it was it was loud 
And Republicans in the in the House in Tennessee ultimately said that this was a protest and it broke decorum and it broke the rules of the House. So they held a vote to expel three of these lawmakers who took part in that kind of protest on the floor. Two of them are black men. One of them is a white woman. Ultimately, they let the white woman keep her job. The two black men were expelled within the last 24 hours. And this is now starting a conversation as to what is it that the Republicans are ultimately trying to do here? Because if it was to keep everyone quiet, this story has now shot itself. Horrible use of words there, but it has kind of thrown itself now to uh, to center stage. Well, yeah, everybody was talking about this. I saw this being live streamed yesterday. Their choice of, you know, removing two but leaving one. Uh, they brought race issues into this. Also, how can they just take democratically elected people and throw them out because they feel like it? This is part of the issue where super majorities, uh, especially Republican super majorities, are becoming more common across the United States and they're taking it into their own hands to be able to do things. Look, if we kind of ignore Tennessee for a moment to go to North Carolina, a Democrat just crossed the aisle in the House to become a Republican, giving North Carolina's Republican House a super majority. In Wisconsin, there is a super majority. So there are concerns that this is going to set a new precedent. Uh, back in Tennessee, though, they have to hold by elections now. Nothing is going to stop these two expelled members from rerunning in a by-election. And again, the quiet part of the Republican circles are saying, is this going to tick off independents and potentially Republican women who don't want their kids killed when they go to school? Well, that's the other thing, too. Let's talk about the flip side of that, which is what happened in Chicago and Wisconsin. Yeah, and look, this is a moment. Democrats were, were kind of unclear how this was going to go, uh, where you have elections that are underway and it's kind of a, a fight between the moderate within the Democratic side and the, uh, the, the further left in the Democratic side and progressives in both of these elections, in the mayor's election and in the Supreme Court, won and won by larger margins. And there was a national eye looking at these races to see how are Democrats potentially going to fare as we head closer to the elections next year and to have two progressives win especially in Chicago, a city that's really come under uh, scrutiny for the ongoing violence issues. Um, to have a progressive win uh, is, is a moment in the United States where Democrats may be able to rally around this. They may be able to point this back to the White House to say, look, this kind of, um, you know, acting like a normal government and not acting like some kind of extreme government or a government that doesn't really care about something, that may work for us. Obviously, we'll have to see how it plays out in Chicago and through Wisconsin, but it is a big win for Democrats. Yeah, the Wisconsin one was really interesting because they they clearly ran that election based on the abortion versus anti-abortion issue. Yeah, absolutely. They did. And to have a progressive win uh, is a big move because this allows the Supreme Court. Obviously, in Canada, we don't have kind of politics that play into into the court matters. But in the U.S., when you elect your judges, uh, the way that that judge leans can tilt the bench one way or the other. So to have now a left-leaning Supreme Court is important. The second side of that story, Wisconsin has a supermajority in Republicans, so there's already talk of trying to impeach uh, that, that Supreme Court justice from not being able to sit so as to not have that kind of tilt leaning on the bench. Okay, all that's fascinating too. And I also want to ask you about the whole Taiwan-China issue because I thought it was quite telling this week that there's a lot of kind of open support among some U.S. politicians for Taiwan. Yeah, and, and look, this is, this is not quiet support. This is loud and long-standing support. Uh, we saw in the previous uh, 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 Congress 
Speaker Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan. Obviously, it triggered uh, a reaction from Beijing, and we saw fighter jets start to buzz the island. Uh, we have currently, at this moment, a delegation of U.S. representatives that are in Taiwan, again, angering China. And at the same time, you had Taiwan's president in, uh, in, uh, in California meeting with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy with bipartisan support from Democrats and Republicans saying that this is an essential move to ensure that Taiwan sees that the United States is there to back its government. All of this, though, is angering Beijing. China does not like the U.S. having standalone um, relationships with Taiwan because China sees Taiwan as a part of its territory and they want all communications to go through Beijing. So to see both Democrats and Republicans rallying on a mutual agreed upon topic, uh, it does bode well for the relationship between the island nation and the U.S. All right, Reggie, thank you so much for all that. Thank you. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is Mornings with Simi. Bob's numbers are out, and for BC anyway, it's a little bit of holding steady, but we did lose a few jobs there. Uh, it, we dropped a little bit, um, but boy, we still have some work to do in some areas, but we wanted to break down all the numbers this morning. So joining us now is Brenda Bailey, the Minister of Jobs, Economic Development and Innovation. Good morning. Good morning. Did you see any areas of concern in BC's jobs market last month? Um, you know, last month was uh, kind of a, a hold-steady sort of month. There weren't any uh, giant sways one way or another. Um, but what we did notice, of course, is that we continue to have one of the lowest unemployment rates in Canada at 4.5%, um, which is you know, good news depending on which side of that you're on. Uh, that can be a challenge for uh, folks looking for workers, of course. Right. Well, where did we lose some jobs? It looks like we did lose a few jobs in the construction industry. Yeah, there, a few jobs were down in the construction aid, uh, industry, um, and they kind of were offset a little bit by gains in things like uh, transportation and warehousing, uh, wholesale and retail, both saw gains, as well as accommodation and food services. So given that you know the market was holding steady, and it feels like it's been doing that, almost like it's holding its breath, right? Waiting to see what happens. What does that tell us, though, about the months ahead? Very hard to know about the months ahead. Um you know, it's possible that there are more turbulent times. Um, this has been a, a, a pretty extraordinary time to be uh, in business, for example, with um, coming through a global pandemic. And um, and then on the other side of it, just when things start to open up again and people coming downtown to have uh, big increases on costs and interest rates, it's been challenging. And it's been, been challenging on folks in their pocketbooks. So... Um, we're aware of that, and, and um, the good news is that our economy uh, came through the height of the pandemic as one of the strongest, if not the strongest, in Canada. And that gives us a really strong basis to weather whatever storms are coming uh, in the next little while. So when you look at the next month or two, then are there some certain sectors that you think, okay, there's some strength showing here? Like, what, what do we look to? Well, you've probably read about <clears throat> some downturns in the tech industry and 
Um, there still is actually quite a lot of growth happening in technology in British Columbia, and there are more job openings um, than there are job losses. Um, so my hope is that that continues and people uh, continue to land on their feet when there are uh, these sort of trainings that some companies are doing. Um, so I'm feeling very hopeful about that sector. And in fact, in 2022, it grew at the fastest rate of any sector in North America. So um, lots of opportunities lie there. Um, you mentioned earlier the construction jobs, and I would say that um, I think that if I were um, playing crystal ball, uh, that that might um, not continue, that those would be losses. I know that we've got uh, a lot of um, financing that uh, is in the 2023 provincial budget focused on building more housing. There's just such a focus on housing. Um, you know, in the downtown east side, for example, we're bringing on 100 new um, homes every month for the next while. So I think there's a, a lot of construction continuing in British Columbia. Um, so I expect to see those numbers where, you know, if I were a guessing person, I would say that that would be a blip more than a trend. Well, we'll find out, I guess, when we talk to you next month with those numbers. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much. That's Brenda Bailey, the Minister of Jobs, Economic Development and Innovation, talking about BC's jobs numbers holding steady in the month of March. Few Fewer people participating in the labour market, but still, I think lots of waiting to see what happens, especially given that interest rates seem to be in a holding pattern tier two. This is Mornings with Simi. It's been absolutely devastation for kids at the high school level. And then for for everyone from alumni to people at the CFL level, it's scrambling to try and find the solution to stop this from happening because nobody in this country wants to see another football program go down the drain. That's JC Abbott from Three Down Nation talking about Simon Fraser University varsity football. Because it's been a few days now since that shocking decision by the administration at SFU to cancel that varsity football program. No notice, no nothing. Now, for me, this is about the student-athletes who spent years working to get there, who made SFU their school of choice when they probably could have gone elsewhere. Well, their lives are being upended. Their post-secondary education, their future careers are all in question, and they had no idea, none, that this was about to happen. And this is a beloved program in Canadian football. It has produced some great players, Louis Psaglia, Julio Caravetta, Sean Millington, so many, many more. Worst part is no discussion, no cry for help that would have allowed people to step up or even get an explanation. But the fight to keep the program at SFU is growing and the BC Lions have now joined in. And the owner of the BC Lions, Amar Doman, is with us now to talk about that. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Absolutely. Good to be here, Simi. Now, why are you speaking up about this? Well, look, this uh, decision has not only shocked everyone, it's hurt everyone. And it was not made with proper consultation. Uh, it was just made in a vacuum and everybody is upset. And we are really, really just not going to let this sit like this until we get proper answers. We're also investigating anything we can do as an organization. And with the alumni, the petitions building now, we want answers and we want to be able to sort this out. The 2023 season should be in place and the kids should be playing football this fall. This is ridiculous. So what can the BC Lions do then? I know you put that call out with your video, but what can you do? Well, absolutely. You know, what we can do is try and, first of all, sit down with SFU Athletics and the AD out there and say, look, what happened here? Number one, we need to understand what's happened and made into the decision. The the statements that are being made are just, they're loose. Uh, They don't have any meat in them. And we want to understand what's happened. Second of all, 
to try to understand what are the requirements to get this train back on the track for 23. And there's not just myself, there's other alumni that are in business that really want to understand what's happening here to see what we can do. If it's financial, let's talk about that. If it's something else, let's talk about that. But let's figure out what is the problem. We're all standing around scratching our heads going, what happened here? Yeah, we are. Have you heard from former players, especially former players with the Lions who went to SFU? We certainly have, and there's a big groundswell here going on. And, you know, not, the alumni are upset. Uh, quite frankly, I won't name names. They want to take their name off the wall if this decision stands out at SFU. This is crazy. Let me ask you, what? how involved can the BC Lions get? So what are the next steps here? Have you reached out for meetings? We have, and uh, we're, we're in touch. We're awaiting a reply to get a meeting. Um, you know, I don't want to say there's excuses being made, but certainly uh, we're not going to go away. So we're really building uh, as much momentum as we can to get meetings going in a dialogue again, just to understand what's happened here and then understand what we can do to help because we will help. This program, it's 50 years old. Uh, I know you went to the school. I did. You know, th- this this. It just can't be made like this. And of course, look, we're not thinking about 24 and beyond. We know there's issues with NCAA. We, we get all that. But why can't we talk to the other U schools across Canada? And apparently they have publicly said to certain people, we did reach out. They did not. No one's heard from them. So this is bizarre. It is bizarre. Now, have you spoken to other CFL teams about this? We've had all the CFL teams reach out to us, the commissioners involved. He's written a letter now. So this is serious, and this is really about the future of sports. It's, it's for athletics. It would be ridiculous in British Columbia to have one university being UBC, the only university playing varsity football. It's ridiculous. And this has such tradition out at SFU. The players you talked about, it's produced more draft picks than any other university in Canada. SFU has and this this just has to be fixed, and we're committed to help fixing it, no matter what that is. Okay. Now, before I let you go, I do have to ask you, how excited are you about this upcoming BC Lions season? We have such a strong team. We are so excited. The fan base has been reinvigorated, and we've got a big party coming up on June 17th. We've got six games that are going to be at 4 o'clock on Saturday. So we're really excited about what's going to happen this year for the BC Lions and our fans, and everybody's excited. So we hope everyone comes out and cheers them on. We're going to try and fill the dome up on the 17th of June. Well, we will do our part to help out with that. Uh, Thank you for joining us on that this morning. Appreciate you having me, and uh, let's hope everything works out for the students. Yeah, let's hope so, too. That's Amar Doman, who's the owner of the BC Lions, getting involved to try to do something, try to save the SFU football program. He said he's heard from other uh, CFL teams right across the country. He's heard from the commissioner. They're getting involved. Uh, That's just a startling thing to hear that in, in the midst of all this, all of this attention, there's a petition as well, haven't heard from the administration at Simon Fraser University. Uh, And that's really unsettling because this is a decision that clearly is impacting and getting a lot of people worked up very emotional. And if there were good reasons for it, let's hear it. Let's hear it. This is kind of crisis communications 101, right? When you've got this kind of situation that is growing and growing and growing day by day, get out in front of it. Talk about this issue. How many times have we said this on this show before, that when you have a crisis like this, you must confront it head on. You must talk about, maybe there's good reasons for this happening, but as, you know, Amr Doman pointed out, we haven't heard them. Uh, we can't, you know, get uh, get them on the air to talk about it. We've made that request several times, uh, still haven't heard from them publicly about what happened. Why didn't they make those phone calls? Why didn't they try to save this program? 
Uh, that's the thing. A lot of alumni are worried. A lot of just general public too are going, what, what's going on here? How can you make a decision like that, that impacts young people, their futures, their careers, and not give them a greater chance to find something else or to go somewhere else or to play. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. We will continue to follow that story. We'll continue to request that we talk to somebody at SFU about this. And maybe, maybe something will happen with that. But you know what? Keep it tuned in here for more on that developing story. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's update you now on the situation that we saw unfolding on the downtown east side this week. So Vancouver City crews have been in the process of continuing to finish removing tents and structures that had been scattered along Hastings Street on the downtown east side there. And they were continuing to do that yesterday too, finishing the cleanup and moving things out there. Now, we've heard a lot about what happened down there. There's lots of questions, uh, not just about the situation, how it unfolded, how it got to that point. Uh, you know, what happened as they tried to clear it all up, but also where is everyone going? That's the big question. We still don't know what happened to everyone from there because what we do know is that not everybody was available to get into housing because there weren't enough places for them to go. So our producer, Bianca Rego, went down to that former encampment site uh, yesterday afternoon, wanted to try to find out how this uh, eviction and the process of eviction has impacted the community down there of the downtown east side. The presence of tent cities have been a point of contention for a while most significantly since 2014, when a tent encampment arose in Oppenheimer Park. Since then, Vancouver has removed 10 tent encampments in 10 years. For example, Oppenheimer Park in 2014, Hastings Street and Thornton Park in 2016, Franklin Street and Main Street in 2017, Oppenheimer Park again in 2019, and then Oppenheimer Park again in 2020, Crab Park in 2020, Strathcona Park in 2021, and now again, Hastings Street in 2023. The police began removing the tent encampment from Vancouver's downtown east side on Wednesday, which has been the site of tents and makeshift structures for eight months. The area is home to more than 20,000 people, many of whom live on the streets or rely on shelters. Housing advocates are describing the way the tents and structures are being removed as violent, traumatizing, and dehumanizing. While I was walking down the street to try and find someone to discuss what happened during the eviction, I was met with no one. The streets were empty. There was nothing but police officers, garbage trucks, and a bunch of empty recycling bins. That's when I came across Charlie. What brings you to Vancouver? Um, I fled from the war, right? I was uh, recruited at the age of 12. Fought three years in the war, right? And so looking for a better place to live, you know? He was carrying a recycling bin that was filled to the absolute brim and was tied together with a rope on a skateboard so he was able to move it while walking down the street. We went to Edmonton, actually. We arrived in Edmonton, but uh, when we got here, we made a stop here in BC. Basically, it was completely different from Edmonton where you can rent a, a house pretty much for a small amount of money, right? Mm-hmm. Turn into uh, just sitting there in an SRO by myself. Just Next thing you know, it's like, Next, you know, drugs came into my life and it was, you know what I mean? Like that spiraling. But back, back to the original topic. 
My original question was whether or not he was part of the encampment eviction. What was happening? Where he was going to go? Basically, the police is just uh, decided not picking everybody out of the block and stuff like that. And there's no other place to go. The police, they say, well, leaving in this our own. And then when you do get a room there, it's like rats coming out of the ground. And I mentioned that to them, you know, like it was a little terrifying, man. You know what I mean? I don't want to pick up my dirty socks and do laundry because there's like could be a rat biting me, right? When you drink the water as well, as well you know, the water just jaddy. All kinds of physical illnesses, you know what I mean? As well as, you know, mental abuse, uh, emotional, you know, uh, psychological, you know what I mean? Like, like 7 p.m. is their curfew. They don't change the locks. You got three, four people with keys to that room that you step out, they step in. It's happened to a lot of us down here. That's a normal thing. Vancouver Mayor Ken Sims stated that out of all of the people relying on the streets for shelter, only eight encampment residents who requested shelter have been accommodated. Let's put this into perspective. There are 20,000 people living in the downtown east side, many of whom are in need of shelter or are residing in encampments either on the street or in parks or in stairwells, or in alleyways. Why would someone choose to live there rather than a shelter? Well, for the simple reason is I don't have bugs on me. That's kind of nice, you know? Because in them rooms, it's just it's infested with bugs. You got people in there that need people that are able to assist them with their uh, meds. They need a certain type of care. And they, they got them mixed up with everybody else. That's not right. You know what I mean? Because everybody doesn't know the mental condition of these gentlemen. And he's bugging now because he hasn't had his meds. Overnight, these people are just off the walls, right? Because now they're medicating themselves. You know, I sympathize with that. But the government just shoves them to the hood and then that's it. We deal with that too, on top of our own problems. Encampments are complex, just like the people who live in them. Municipalities often seek a judge-ordered eviction in court, citing reasons like traffic, security, and fire risks to people and property in order to get these encampments to close. However, this approach is generally short-lived, and residents are merely displaced without a permanent solution being provided due to a lack of housing. I guess everybody's running around a little desperate too, right? They want to stop negligence and and, and, uh, violence and all that. They want to put a stop to that. Everybody knows they have a problem with this, but all they want to do is just point the finger at what the problem is. Nobody wants to get their hands dirty. The people that start off with willing to do things, they burn off, they're burnt out. Employers see their employees and they're just like, oh, little Susan, no, she's going to lose it. You know what I mean? Like, and it's, they know that she's burned down and it's like, because they've been mistreated, they've been abused, they feel a little bit sore. Rightfully so, if you ask me, right? And then other people come along the way and then be proper and like, they refuse to see that. That's why I catch myself. You know what I mean? Like, I sympathize with, with, with them, you know, being in the front lines and, and doing things for us to benefit our lives, you know? And yet, getting treated that way, it's not right. But it wasn't me. And they, they just, they don't want to see that. They're like, it don't matter if you've been proper or not. We're going to treat you like you're not. This is why advocates like the Coordinated Community Response Network of the downtown east side are saying that the city of Vancouver's escalation plan for decampment without providing suitable housing or support is failing to address critical concerns in a sustainable, dignified or compassionate manner. And so what do I do? You want to treat me like a dog? You want to treat me like a dog? Don't be surprised when I bite you. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Vancouver Whitecaps are back in action this weekend. They'll be playing the Portland Timbers. That, of course, is a classic matchup. So... What's on the agenda here? I know keeping it intense is going definitely going to be at the top of the list. Vanny Sartini, coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps, join us now. Good morning. Good morning, Sini. How are you? I am good, thank you. Have you all recovered from the game on Wednesday? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, the game on Wednesday was uh, tough. We actually played well. It didn't, it didn't go well, but, you know, that can happen when you play in those competition against the best teams in, uh, in North America and the Champions League. So... We are coming from two good performances. We won last Saturday against Montreal, so let's keep the energy up and try to beat our rival, Portland, uh, tomorrow. Okay, so you want more intensity is what you're telling the team. Yeah, you know, it's, I would say, more uh, uh, to keep up the pace for the entire game. So, like, uh, last game, uh, we did very well for the first 60 minutes, then they, the other team scored a goal with a fantastic goal that we just had to literally takes take our half uh, our hat off to say to the other players very good goal and we we went a little bit in confusion for 10 minutes so you know we need to be a little bit more mature than when things are not going our way to keep working and keep doing it because we are actually doing well right and you you believe that when you look at the team that you're seeing more positives Sorry, say it again. You, 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 when you look at the team, then are you seeing more positives than negatives right yeah, now? Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. You know, in uh, in the league in MLS, uh, we are undefeated in the last four games. We are playing well. We are uh, we are actually, you know, uh, we are doing what we are supposed to do, and I I think we're on the right path uh, to be successful and to and to make uh, our fans happy. Well, fans are happy. I think fans are happy when they just see an effort, don't you think? Like they know, they can tell if the team played hard. The team played hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's to be honest. Uh, also, we have to uh, we have to say that uh, even even when things are not going well, of course, fans are happy when we won. <laughs> but uh, even when uh, when we're down, and mm, we always have their support because uh, you know, uh, as you said, it's the most important thing for them is to is to show that we really care, that we really try, and uh, that we want to achieve the win together. Okay, and so that's how... And it's especially when you're playing one of your big-time rivals, right? And would you put Portland in that category? Because I would. Yes, 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 I would for sure. I would for sure. Yeah, like, uh, uh, you know, last week we were playing against uh, uh, Montreal and, and everyone was saying about this uh, Canadian rivalry. Yeah, it's true, but I feel more the... The rivalry against uh, our Cascadia rival, to be honest, against Seattle and Portland. Uh, uh, every time we're going to have uh, fans from uh, from the other team arriving at the stadium uh, uh, for the game. So it's it's kind of uh, uh, I would say special taste if we if we can beat them. And you know, since I've uh, been the head coach of the team, we won in Portland, but we never beat Portland at home. So I think it's time to do it. Uh, yeah, I think it is time to do it. Okay, good luck. Play hard. I look forward to talking to you and seeing how the game goes. Fantastic. Thank you, Simi. Thanks, Coach. That is Vanny Saratini, head coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. They're playing Portland this weekend. But here's the other thing. Uh, the Whitecaps are also hosting Visaki Night this weekend. So you're going to actually have a really, really good time at this game. So that is for Saturday's game. So tomorrow uh, they will have, it's their second annual Visaki Night that they've got going on there. They've got a special supporters march to the match that are coming up. They've got live entertainment. They will have some fantastic 
food. Uh, they will have a lot of celebrations. There's going to be a pretty kind of big, almost like a street festival thing happening prior to the game. So go enjoy yourself. Um, you'll have some great kind of Visaki celebration too. And let's hope they carry that forward and then win the game against Portland. Uh, so yeah, they need this one. They really do. This is Mornings with Simi. How many shelter spaces are available right now? Uh, Mike, I don't have the accurate number, so uh, you know, you I, know, I don't want to throw out a number. Shouldn't you know that? Before you move people out, shouldn't you know how many shelter spaces are available before you tell people to move along? Yeah, pretty good question, right? That's been the question all this week. Where was everyone supposed to go? That was Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim talking to Mike Smith on the morning the decampment start process started on Hastings Street. Announcement ongoing for a few days. We still don't know, though, if everyone was found a place to go to or even what's available out there. So we wanted to get an update on this process and what's been happening. Joining us now is Vancouver City Councilor Rebecca Bly. Thank you for being here this morning. Good morning, Simi. So what is the latest on this? Is the process finished from the City of Vancouver's perspective? Um, in, in terms of the uh, initial um, um, plan to, to clear the structures um, two days ago, yes, that was completed sort of in that day. And now we work, uh, we're working continuously, engineering staff, homelessness, outreach staff, um, and if needed at all, um, of course, with the support of the VPD are down um, in the downtown east side, in these few blocks, connecting with people as um, new structures may emerge uh, and making sure folks know um, that the structures cannot be left in place um, and need to be moved along. And then, of course, finding shelter um, beds for those that would like to be uh, would like to move indoors. Right. And do we know about that, though? Do we know if everybody was found a shelter bed or someplace to go? You know, I... I Right now, there were um, at least uh, 10 people um, uh, were found um, shelter beds um, in the last, uh, in that very first day, and then another 10 yesterday. So shelter, as we know, shelter beds are quite fluid. These are not permanent um, spaces for people, so so the people do come and go. And as new shelter beds are made available, we're prioritizing to make sure that work very, very quickly working with um, those operators to get people uh Bought inside, and we're we're happy to say that there were out of um, out of um, the new structures that emerged yesterday um, that another ten people did take shelter and live indoors. Right, but there are a lot more than just ten people down there, right? So, is there any process that's being undertaken to track where everybody has gone? We have um, we have uh, we have been tracking people's contact info and and where they are. Of course, there um, there are people camping and sleeping outdoors, sleeping rough all across the city, um, and we know that that is a a a, a, ch- a challenge and absolutely a critical um, metric that we have to continue to ensure that that number comes down as new supportive housing units come online. And we know that the province now is very much at the table and has over the last couple of weeks asserted themselves as taking a leadership role for that integrated um, approach to um, housing and other um, supports related to mental health and addictions. And we're uh, anticipating with their commitment 300 new units coming online by the end of June. And so we're making sure that the information we have as city staff, and we were thanked by many people, to be honest, about their care and concern uh, as as we're tracking who needs um, supportive housing and making sure that we can reach back out to them as soon as we get units on Line. And of course, this is in partnership with BC Housing, who has a bigger picture regional 
um, sort of approach regional picture of, of also what could be available out there and not just centered in the city of Vancouver. Right. But you said could be available. We don't really know, though, do we? What is available out there? Well, you have to remember that the city of Vancouver and and um, our our primary responsibility in this context is to ensure that, and we have a fully staffed up homelessness outreach team, but we are partners, right? We're, we're helping an on-the-ground um, response to feed that information up to BC Housing, which of course is um, the, province, uh, the province's responsibility around housing and making sure we're working in partnership. Um, us being able to uh, track all of those units available, we, we can do, and we do get that number regularly from BC Housing, but ultimately it's BC Housing that is making those decisions about where people are going to go. Right. Councillor Bly, I guess what I wonder is like, what was the planning for this like then in terms of city council mm-hmm. being briefed on this? Was BC housing at the table? Were those questions asked? Did, did you say uh, like how many spaces are available? Where are these people going to go? Were those questions asked before this process was undertaken? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very good question. And, and I, you know, there's myself um, not necessarily being at those tables, but being briefed after on some of the um, details as we went into this very difficult week um, was that um, there are, we're keeping uh, emergency winter shelters open as long, uh, much longer than we normally would to ensure that we can have the maximum amount of shelter beds available. So of course that was in partnership with local um, operators, but also uh, BC Housing was at the table. Minister Kalon has um, um, undergone uh, roundtables in the community over the past few weeks um, to to better understand what are those services that are needed. The city of Vancouver has been at that table. There had to come a point where we were at the lowest number of structures, recognizing we've been working on um, the fire chief's order that these the the hundreds and hundreds of structures that we had last summer in East Hastings was posing an incredible um, safety risk to everybody, first responders people living on the street, residents in the city, existing housing stock. So for nine months, this plan has been underway to to clear the streets. And it got to a point where no matter how much outreach we did, um, those last 80 structures um, were just sort of um, entrenched and they were not willing to move no matter what. And so we unfortunately had to make that be the day that we have to finish clearing as per the fire chief's order. And from there, anything that emerges now, we can work with. But when you're dealing with an entrenched encampment, it goes without saying that the level of violence and the level of risk puts everybody at risk and people are better um, brought indoors as much as possible and certainly not in an entrenched encampment setting that um, propane tanks uh, as I say, the assaults, the reports we were getting every single weekend, I mean, you were reporting on them, others were reporting on them. There had to come a time where we needed to um, to um, have that encampment come to an end fully. And now we're, we're dealing like we have for a decade, uh, the homelessness crisis. And we're very grateful that the city, uh, that the province um, under um, Premier Evie's leadership is now a renewed energy and a renewed commitment, I would say, um, to deal with this crisis um, that we have on our streets when it comes to unhoused people. How long will this process continue? You mentioned that you know you're, you're trying to kind of stay on top of it now as new structures or new tents kind of pop up there. How long will that process continue? You know, I I, I do think it's ongoing to me. Um, I I do think that um, the province recognizes now that we cannot leave these encampments unchecked. 
and let them um, grow to an unmanageable size. So I asked that very question um, yesterday to our city staff and city manager and our, as I mentioned, homelessness teams, engineering teams um, will be down all weekend connecting with people and staying on top of this. And hopefully with these new units coming online, um, our, our most sort of difficult to house folks in our city that are really finding it challenging to um, to get into stable housing will be able to do so with um, new units, as I say, coming online by the end of June. So are you content with how this like unfolded? Do you think there are things that could have been done better? You know, I, I, we had I personally, but I know others as well had um, were, were very, very. Um, what do I want to say? I mean, we were we were hyper aware of the difficult day that it was going to be, and um, upon reflection, I actually think, you know, despite how challenging it was and and um, the reality of the situation, it, it we didn't have huge clashes. Uh, with with police, um, we've got of course people out there that are advocating um, for for housing, and they ought to. And we need to continue to keep our finger on the pulse. But ultimately, I think our staff did a very good job, and we have heard um, from residents living in SROs and other um, low in, low income housing in the downtown east side that they are very grateful that they can now leave their house and not be um, blocked or or afraid for their safety. They can access groceries. They can get to their services. So. I think we are. People might be surprised to hear we are hearing a lot of um, welcome feedback from from the businesses. And as I say, people who are reaching out to our staff directly on the street are thanking them for being kind for the supports. We've stored people's belongings. We're doing everything possible to make sure that this is a compassionate approach to something that is very difficult because we're balancing public safety with people who are unhoused and we need need to make sure that we're doing that in a in an empathetic and compassionate way and i'd say that i'm i'm proud of our city staff for for striking that balance over the past nine months to get us to a point where we are today well thank you very much for your time on that this morning thank you very much city